Hey everyone, and welcome to the Plant Industry News Podcast, hosted by Holly Hughes with the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Division of Plant Industry. As a regulatory agency of the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, the Division of Plant Industry works to detect, intercept, and control plant and honeybee pests that threaten Florida's native and commercially grown plants and agricultural resources. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we'll hear from Dr. Trevor Smith from the Director's Desk and Matt Moore. Matt serves as the supervisor for the Molecular Diagnostics Lab housed in the Diagnostics Bureau. In our interview, Matt shares about the importance of the work the Molecular Lab performs and the resource it serves, as well as some special projects they are working on. Then stay tuned for news and announcements in the Division Digest. from the director's desk with Trevor Smith. Well, welcome back to our podcast, DPI. It's been a few months, so we've got quite a bit to talk about. Happy New Year, four months late, but uh, glad to be back with you. I know Holly and Christina have got a plan to do a whole lot of interviews, a lot of other interesting work that goes on here. We're going to try and tap into that. But first of all, I mean, obviously, I want to thank all of our employees for hanging in there through the COVID-19 crisis. I know it's been tough, especially those of you that have elderly parents or have children that obviously can't go to school. I know it's been a huge challenge and, and you've all, as always, risen to the challenge. We're just a very mobile group. I think all these years of dealing with emergencies, dealing with fruit fly programs, um, we have over 500 laptops in this division. That's more than any other division by far. And part of that is because we have to pick up and move to wherever the emergency is. So we were actually positioned fairly well to deal with a situation like this. Those of you that are teleworking, again, you're doing an awesome job. We haven't had a, I can't think of a single complaint that I've had from industry through all this. Everybody is still getting what they need. We are essential. We're part of the food chain. We're part of agriculture. So those folks are still growing and they need us and they need what we do. Uh, We've had several new continental records pop up in this time. So uh, our inspectors are still doing a great job of keeping their eyes open. Our scientists are doing a good job of IDing these things. And for us, you know, the job goes on. So thank you very much. We're sounding like at this point, this is leveling off a little bit around the country but who knows how long we're going to be under these conditions. And the fact that everybody's been able to hold this together and continue operations uh, as effectively and efficiently as we have, is just a testament to everybody in the division. So thank you. Uh, Obviously, any new updates, any changes in office operations or social distancing and all the things we're dealing with, uh, we're going to distribute that to you immediately. So as for updates probably should hit the biggest one, which is hemp. So we've been talking about this for the last year and a half. Well, it's happening. We actually, not only did we have the funding we needed, we actually got it in this budget, but we are actually at this point a few weeks away from the program going live. So what does that mean for DPI? Well, I think you all received an email from Brian Benson at one point, those of you that may be involved in this. Kind of what does this mean for DPI? 
And without going into too much detail, because we have discussed this before, it's going to involve us basically licensing people to grow hemp. And there's going to be several different divisions involved. AES has got a part of this. Food safety's got a part of this. Ag law's got a part of this. Licensing's got a piece of this. <laughs> we, this really is a group effort at the departmental level. But essentially, what it comes down to for DPI is we will be the ones permitting people to grow hemp. Obviously, any kind of pest and disease issues we're involved in with that, mapping those locations, making sure that there's no volunteer plants growing outside of the designated area, and of course, working with them when it comes time to harvest and helping them get their plant material off to a lab for THC testing. So this is exciting. The commissioner did a great job of arguing for our increased budget for this. We're actually going to be getting 17 positions to be a part of the hemp program. Some of that's clerical. Some of that is going to be biological scientists. The majority, though, is going to be inspectors. Most of these positions will be inspectors going out in the field and dealing with these plantings. And we don't really know. We're still speculating on how many they're going to be. There could be... 1,000, there could be 3,000, there could be 5,000. We're planning for about 3,000. We think that's how many permits that there'll probably be in the first year, but it really is just guesswork at this point. So we're ready for anything. And the fact that we were able to tackle Saul Palmetto Berry permitting with literally a week's warning a couple of years back, I'm absolutely confident that we're going to get this thing up and running. And of course, there's going to be hiccups. There's going to be things that we didn't anticipate. But the hemp team, led by Brian Benson, they've already been having ICS meetings. Every kind of scenario has been thrown out there. What if this happens? What if that happens? And of course, being the commissioner's signature program, we want to make sure in this first year that we get it running as smoothly as possible. But any new program, you know, we're going to find out things that we didn't even anticipate. But I'm confident it's going to go really well, and I'm excited about it. So that's the hemp update. We also have a large eradication program going on around the state right now, the lychee mite eradication program. So currently, for those of you keeping track, we have two eradication programs that are current. We've got the giant African land snail program going on in South Florida, and we've got the lychee mite eradication program. So far, we've actually, in, in the way we're dealing with this, I gave an update a few months back on the podcast, but for those of you who might not have heard it, to deal with the lychee mite, we actually have to go into an infected tree. We have to heavily prune it, so you have to pretty much defoliate the entire tree, and you have to treat it with sulfur. And then you have to come back and retreat for up to five to six retreatments every two weeks until you've knocked out that population. All of that plant material, we have to witness it being collected, brought to a landfill, and buried. So there's quite a bit to the process. It's quick, and we're actually contracting this out to companies that do this all the time in citrus and avocado and any kind of tree trimming businesses that we can find in the areas. And they can move fairly quickly, but everything, every T has to be crossed and every I has to be dotted because... These are mites. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to make sure you get every single one of them. You really have to follow the SOPs to the letter. Uh, but it's going really well. Steve Hildebrand has been leading the charge on that. We've already actually cut and treated over 350 trees, and that's in Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, Martin, and Broward counties. Now, these are just outliers. The main population is in Lee County. In fact, not just Lee County, but in Pine Island. 
that's where the real population explosion was, and that's where we think this thing first appeared. So what we're doing is we're working our way back towards Lee County. Right now we're working along the East Coast. We'll move inland from there, and eventually we'll have this thing isolated out on Pine Island, and that'll be the final push, and that'll be the biggest one because there's quite a bit of uh, lychee acreage out there. So that's going really well. Something else to update everybody on is the Farm Bill, which is actually called the Plant Protection Act now. But for those of us that have been involved in this a long time, we still call it the Farm Bill. Uh, we had an incredibly successful year. We actually brought in, the Division of Plant Industry alone, brought in $5.2 million in competitive grant dollars through the Farm Bill or Plant Protection Act. The entire state of Florida only received about six million. So DPI took 90% of that funding, just this division alone. And that includes USDA, ARS, UF, AMU, they all apply for these dollars. But with our reputation and our success story, we just are very successful. So that includes a lot of different things. Some of it is for fruit fly detection. Some of it is more related to eradication programs like giant African snail and lychee mite. We also have honeybee surveys looking for different diseases and pests and honeybees. We've got our detector dogs. There's a lot of outreach programs that are funded through Farm Bill. So it's a pretty diverse list of projects that, that we actually have funded through the Farm Bill. But again, this was just a huge shout out to all of those program managers out there that write these justifications, write these proposals, and then work through us to get these submitted to Farm Bill. Just done an outstanding job. There's a few out there that we didn't get, and that's always the case, but that just means we'll try harder next time, go back to the drawing board, try and figure out what it was that just didn't resonate. But for the most part, I can't complain at all about what we've done with the Farm Bill over the last few years. Other than that, again, it's business as usual in a very, very, very unusual time. So we again, we still have inspectors going out there doing their thing. We still have our folks out in the citrus groves doing their inspections and certifications and getting compliance agreements signed. We're still checking fruit fly traps. And here at the administrative level, we're almost in the fourth quarter of the fiscal year. So now is kind of the time where we start to really take a look at the budget and see where do we have deficit or where do we need to spend money. This is kind of, and it's been a pretty good opportunity, being that we're all kind of trapped in our offices, this has been a good opportunity to go through and kind of deal with that. We've also been working on rules. Again, not very sexy, but it's very important. A lot of these rules were written in the 50s and 60s, and they're just not accurate anymore. They're not actually representative of what we're doing. So again, it's something that's always been on our list to do. We just haven't been able to get around to doing it. So that's something else that's being done in offices right now is updating those rules. I think that's all I'm going to go through today. We'll be back next month. I know it's been a couple of month hiatus here, but we'll get back to the monthly podcasts and keep everybody informed as to what's going on. And again, keep your heads down. Everybody's doing a great job with the COVID-19 situation. Let's just keep this push going and, and we'll all get through this and we'll be stronger for it. So thank you, everybody. And I'll talk to you next month. When you travel by land, sea or air, ask, can I bring it and declare agricultural items? With your help, we can safeguard natural resources and protect the food supply from invasive pests and disease. Thank you.
Whatever your destination, enjoy the journey. And remember, don't pack a pest. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Today on the podcast, we have Matt Moore. Matt, thank you for joining us. Hello. You are in charge of our molecular diagnostics lab, so why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself and what you do at DPI? Sure. So a little background about myself. Uh, I'd consider myself an entomologist by training, but now I'm sort of moonlighting as a nematologist as well, so I'm kind of expanding into other organismic groups. I got my bachelor's of science in entomology from the University of Nebraska. I did a master's of science in biological sciences at Wichita State University in Kansas. And currently I'm a PhD candidate in entomology at UF. I've been the supervisor of the diagnostics laboratory for nearly two years now. But before then I started out as a, an OPS lab tech. So really I've, I've been working here for about three years. Okay. Yeah. When did you take over the MDL as a supervisor? Uh, right towards the end of 2018. Okay. Yeah, that's about right. And so my duties there as a supervisor of the lab, I manage two workers, Lynn and Cheryl. I handle all the ordering for the lab. I design the experiments and I prioritize the work. I quality control the data we produce. I also handle all, almost all of the analysis. Sometimes I collaborate with John McVeigh from Plant Pathology on that. And I also handle a lot of writing. So reports, but also when we have uh, scientific data that we're looking to publish, I handle all those write-ups as well. Are those uh, like industry journals and that kind of thing, or is it papers for UF? Or? Sometimes they're, they're just general interest scientific journals. Our most recent one that came out is in the Journal of Nematology. What is the Molecular Diagnostics Lab? What is it used for? We've had a couple of different entomologists on the podcast and so we've talked a lot about EMPP and the bureau itself and kind of all of the ologies and what they're responsible for and the MDL is a part of EMPP yes uh, but it is you know kind of this silent quiet section that not a lot of people know about so fill us in yeah well our role is to provide DNA or RNA based identifications for the division as you mentioned we are part of EMPP but we do collaborate with more or less all comers. So we've processed samples for methods and development, for example, where they've needed confirmation of the identity of something that they have in colony. We'll provide them that information too. Uh, we'll work with anybody. But we use more or less two main data types. First is we generate DNA sequence data. So we have two sequencers that we operate almost every day at this point. We're sequencing a little bit at a time, but it's fairly constant. And then we use other non-sequencing-based tests um, to also help diagnose plant pathogens and diseases. The sequence data we generate, we use a technique. It's, it's kind of our, our bread and butter. Okay. That's actually for what we do. Is we're not fishing for data. We're always after kind of the same sort of thing. It's a technique called DNA barcoding. And the premise here is that across different organismic groups, there's going to be some genes that are conserved enough where you can do the biochemistry to sequence them easily, but they evolve fast enough that hypothetically, most species will have a unique sequence, in a sense, a barcode. So if you get the sequence, you could confidently identify the species based on that sequence if you had no other information. This target gene, the DNA barcode, varies between groups. In animals, 
it's called CO1. That's the abbreviation. And we're almost always working with arthropods. Insects and mites are what, what we've been doing uh, for this technique. But then in fungus, for example, it's a different gene. And then in bacteria, it's a different gene. And plants have a whole different set right. of genes. Because uh, they're not animals. <laughs> right, completely, um, that are most suitable for this purpose. We've been able to actually ramp up our activities to provide that service to all of the sections of the MPP. So we've done sequencing for pathology, nematology, botany, and entomology. Wow. We've done it all now. Yeah. What would you say is the importance of being able to test specimens at a molecular level? I know on past fruit fly programs, we've used the MDL as a resource to be able to confirm identities of different fruit flies based on historical programs from the 90s or before. Mm -hmm. And so what's the importance of having this technology and this resource available to us now and moving forward? There's like two main factors here. One, sometimes it's the only way to diagnose something. Oh, okay. And second, sometimes if it's not the only way, it's the fastest way. So if we're actually trying to serve a customer quickly, Mm -hmm. that's the best approach. So In the first case where it might be the only way to diagnose something, uh, the best example probably comes from insects. If you think about it, there's a million described species of insects, approximately. Estimates for the total diversity vary widely, but it might, you know, the consensus is probably about 7 million species of just insects on Earth. Most of those are poorly known. They may be only known from their original description. If it's ever been followed up on, it is not always easy to determine. The literature is vast and a lot of it is old. Right. And then you also have cases where many of those species were only described from one life stage or maybe only one sex. Okay. So you could get an important sample. You might say, well, it's a female. There's no scientific literature for identifying the females. Mm -hmm. DNA barcode then would be your first next option for providing a diagnosis there. Also immature stages. Oftentimes... Insects are described from their adult stage. Right, yeah. The immatures are just unknown to science. And it's important that we identify these pests early so right. that they don't ever mature to their adult stage. Right. Or sometimes that's just what you commonly encounter because that might be the the life stage that's important economically yeah. versus the adult, which maybe isn't much of an issue. There's analogs in these other organismic groups as well. Plants, for example. I think probably for native North American flora, there's plenty of identification material that the botanist can use to identify native plants. But then if you had something exotic that they were trying to identify where there was a little bit less information, again, they might need to rely on a flower or a part of a fruit or something might be the diagnostic character for that species. Mm-hmm. And if your sample doesn't have that, well, then where are you left? Yeah. You need, a, no you need genetic information. And then beyond that, bacteria and fungus provide another example where much of the older literature relies on biochemistry. And you'd have to put samples through a whole battery of selection tests to sort of whittle down the identity. Um, these tests were good, but they are time-consuming and sensitive and prone to a lot of mistakes, human error essentially, mm-hmm. and contamination. But with sequence data, which is where identification in those groups has moved to completely, has allowed for like sort of iterative identification of these things in, in huge databases of sequences. So that's almost where those entire fields of bacteriology and mycology have moved towards, is, is using sequence data 
to provide their identifications. How long do you think sequencing has been around and used as a resource? Is it fairly new in the grand scheme of things? No, it's not. But the pace at which the data is being accumulated is faster than ever. More or less starting in the early 90s, this became a reality. And, and sort of modern sequence databases that we all rely on were established at that time. And sequencing chemistry got better and was improved. And a lot of standard protocols were just kind of established then. Since that time, it's become sort of ubiquitous data to gather. So more people are doing it. Plus, there's new sequencing technologies that are just rapidly increasing all our data generation. Mm -hmm. So the pool of data which we're able to compare our sequences to is increasing all the time, faster than it ever has before. So actually, sequence data are becoming more and more powerful pretty much every day. That's awesome. Yeah. What are, because I know a few of them, but mm -hmm. tell the people what are some of the major accomplishments that y'all have been able to achieve? Yeah, uh, I've got a list here <laughs> that I've sort of prioritized, but I think the first one is because I'm a cooperative guy, but I'm also really curious is that when I, I took the job, I was actually excited to like work on all these other things because I had been stuck in entomology realm for so long. I was like, oh, I'm excited to test a plant. I've never done that before. I'm excited to test a nematode. Never done it. Yeah. So I can say now that after two years, we've expanded our testing to serve all the sections of EMPP, which is probably maybe the most important major accomplishment because it's paid dividends. We are getting better identifications in cases where we weren't necessarily sure before, mm -hmm. and we're clarifying other questions as well about pathways that maybe things got into Florida, or even their genetic diversity of pests that are here. Uh, we're finding out about that as well. The second, which is also very important for our customers, is that we implemented a new rapid test for identifying guava root knot nematode for certification. So this species was quarantined from Louisiana at the very end of 2018. And since that quarantine has expanded into Mississippi and Arkansas. So the general idea here is that all plant material that would be exported from Florida to those states has to be certified free of this guava root knot nematode species. Why do we care about it or why has it been regulated? That's not my area of expertise, but from what I understand is that it acts just like most root knot nematodes. There's nothing really special about it in terms of its biology, but what is happening is that it's breaking resistance in a lot of plant lines that are bred to be tolerant or resistant to infection by other root knot nematodes. So this is especially important for uh, solanaceous crops. So there were tomato lines bred for resistance to these things for tomatoes, peppers, eggplants. And unfortunately, this species is breaking that resistance. Yeah. And so it's been quarantined from these states. So our test has allowed for timely certification of samples for these exports to this state. So I think to date, We've done about 1,300 samples. Wow, since the end of 2018. Mm -hmm. Yeah, since we first validated and implemented this test that we're doing. But there's also been other scientific dividends. So because we're one of, well, I would say maybe we're the only people, certainly in North America, we're not exactly surveying for this thing, but because the plants that we get for export are more or less random, we're finding new hosts, things that we didn't know that this nematode could infect. Yeah. Uh, these are mostly ornamentals but um, we're finding lots of interesting new host records for this species using this test, which then we follow up on with subsequent data 
to confirm the identity, but we've now published two research notes on new host records for this species, and we're working on a third. So actually over time, as we continually test samples for this thing, we're going to keep finding new and interesting ways that it's infecting our ornamental plants. Yeah, and this, that data will only be beneficial for years to come, not just for ourselves, but for any other agencies out there that are That's also right. testing for this as mm-hmm. well. Yep. A third major accomplishment has to do with our fruit fly research funding. We have two projects right now related to fruit flies. We recently received our fourth consecutive year of farm bill funding to study the genus Anastrepha. Exotic fruit flies kind of pose an existential threat to some of our industries here in Florida, mostly citrus production. The state has a long history of eradication programs. Some of those programs have included the genus Anastrepha. I think probably oriental fruit fly is the most like flagship species that the eradication programs have targeted. That species is included in an Asian genus. And then there's another genus that's kind of Afrotropical. Anastrepha is different from those because it's a New World Tropical species, uh, genus, yes. It's the most diverse genus of tephritid fruit flies in the New World. Most of its diversity is centered in uh, Central and South America. Our studies now, because of this grant funding, what we've discovered is through collaborators, more than 100 new species in the genus. So now we think there's about 400 species in it. And through this work, we've also developed a DNA barcoding data set to identify them that now includes about 280 species. Our goal is to have it be comprehensive. We want to get data from every single species and then evaluate how effective the protocol is for identifying each of those. That goal may never be met because it's hard to get material, especially from flies that are living in the middle of tropical rainforests. It's not easy to find them. But we have been very successful so far in accumulating this data set. We're also using it to produce further insights. So not only are we developing the DNA barcoding data set for all of these species, we're also using that data set to identify larvae of those same fruit flies conclusively so that they can be described to science. Because almost all the species, in a genus of 400, I think about 25 of them have described immature stages. So it's a very poor sampling. And so we're trying to boost that number up a lot, as many species as we can. And that's worked very well so far. And the second fruit fly project we have now is a large grant to assist the USDA in identifying fruit flies intercepted from Florida ports of entry. So instead of a more of a state issue, this is a federal issue. But across the United States at ports of entry, they find infested fruits all the time filled with these high-risk species of fruit flies for uh, introduction into states like Florida and Texas and California and Hawaii as well. And so one of the questions is for mitigating these risks, you really need to understand which species are actually present that you're intercepting. But again, they're larvae, which are difficult to identify. So we've moved towards this project is to sequence every single day sign fruit fly larvae. This is the group that includes oriental fruit fly that have been intercepted in every port for the last five years. What number are you at right now? Well, for Florida, uh, we just got started. So we're just up to about 120 samples, but we have many more in the wings. I think in total, it may be about 6,000 individuals that we're testing across all the collaborators. That's the goal. And are you getting some good diversity in terms of... We are. We're seeing actually things that we have never been suspected before. Wow. Yeah. So there are some new interesting, cool things in there. We only service samples that come through the division. I mean, if USDA asks us to, then we will process their samples, but we're not actively running those tests for them. Is that right? 
yeah, this is just a special cooperative agreement between us for okay. this project. Okay. Yep, it's a very specific thing. What do you enjoy most about your work? Well, the diagnostics lab is in a great position to stay excited because I think by definition we get the most interesting samples that come through the division. They're the most difficult cases, basically. So it's very gratifying to be able to help identify something that would otherwise kind of just languish or not be possible. Mm -hmm. So that's very gratifying. And then also, because I love biology, I've been able to expand my skills to work on all these different groups, which I would never have had an opportunity to do before. That's definitely the, the what I enjoy the most, is the diversity of, of work that we get to do. And it's also its importance, because it is helping. You can't get bored whenever you're working on all of the different categories that our division touches. Right. And, you know, of course everybody really enjoys what they do here whenever they're scientists, because that's, you know, their thing. So yeah. you get to experience all of it. Mm -hmm. Why don't you walk us through what your typical day is in the lab? You and your staff, you know, I'm sure are processing hundreds of samples a week. So what's kind of your routine? What process do you go about getting all of these tested in a timely manner? Yeah, the first thing that I typically do when I walk in the building is uh, we run our sequencers overnight. So the idea is that we could put those samples on the sequencer at the end of the workday, and in the morning it's finished. So typically I walk right in, I pull the raw data off the sequencer, and then I have something to work on right off the bat. So I'll go through and assemble those data and try to provide IDs based on those sequences right away. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I can prioritize the work because maybe sometimes if the quality of the data wasn't very good, I know that those experiments need to be repeated. After I look at those data, then it's moving on to the, the next new things for the day. So we always prioritize certification samples first. So whenever we get something from apiary inspection or from the nematologists or oftentimes other urgent regulatory samples, we work on those first. And the first step, of course, is to extract DNA from the samples. So we have a few different protocols for that. Some are faster than others, but they have trade-offs. So the fast ones, you save time, but the quality of the extraction is diminished. So it might be good for one application, but not as good for others. And then we also have a slower technique that you kind of have the opposite situation where you have a, a sample that is more pure. It will last longer. It will hypothetically work better for more applications. But then again, you're spending a day on it instead of a couple hours. And then once DNA extractions are complete, then we move on to the other experiments, which are always a PCR reaction, either a qPCR for the, the rapid diagnostics tests or building a DNA fragment moving towards sequencing. We also try to keep the lab moving. So while we're doing this, the division of labor is such that we can do all of these steps in the same day. So it's like, we'll take some samples from the day before and those may be being prepared to go on the sequencer. Meanwhile, other samples are being extracted and PCR'd for the next day yeah. of sequencing. So it's all happening at the same time. And that's why I'm so lucky to have great employees that work under me because they're highly organized and motivated and so we're able to maintain this wheel is always turning. Yeah. We're never really stopping to focus on any one step in the process. We're able to manage all of those 
simultaneously. That's awesome. And then, you know, if I'm not writing or doing a report or crunching data, I will also jump on the bench and do kind of the wet bench work. Though it's rare for us to need to do that, but sometimes we are so busy that all three of us will be pipetting at the same time and mm-hmm. bumping into each other and spinning centrifuges and the, it, it does happen. Are the machines loud? Mm, no, there's a couple things that are loud. Uh, we have a, an apparatus that pulverizes samples as part of the DNA extraction process. That's the loudest thing. Yeah, otherwise they're pretty quiet. What sample size do you need? Like, do you need the whole specimen or can you just like extract DNA out of a wing? What kind of sample size do you need for it to be effective? Yeah, we can tailor that to the scientist's needs. So the answer is we don't need the whole specimen for sure. We can use just a small part. And actually, this is desirable. There's a concept for molecular biologists, a voucher sample. More or less, a specimen that both exists mostly intact, but also has DNA data associated with it, is the most powerful type of info that you can have. So you can have a a sequence associated with a a phenotype, essentially, of an organism. So oftentimes, if we have something very rare, maybe a new continental record or something, Mm -hmm. we want the DNA sequence data, but we also really want to keep those specimens. So we try very hard to not destroy the whole thing. And so there's a few ways you can do that. You could just take a piece of tissue from it, essentially dissect it a little bit, and then maintain the rest of the specimen. Or, in the case of small specimens, we do like a whole body non-destructive extraction, or more or less you just soak the entire individual in the extraction buffer, and then you do your best not to disturb it too much as it digests, and then at the end of the process, you actually just take that specimen out, clean it up, and then you'd have the whole thing left, basically. But yeah, you don't need a lot of input. If you have a very optimized protocol, you can deal with very small amounts of DNA, and it will still work. That's probably ideal for specimens that are being trapped in like Jackson traps and that kind of thing where there might be some other debris and, you know, so you don't have the whole, the whole specimen there. Yeah, you yeah. just have part of it. I'm sure that that really helps. It does. It would be possible to test, hypothetically, even things that are traces of a pest instead of the whole thing. For example, insect frass. Like maybe you ran into a case where you suspected there was a pest there. Maybe the insects are gone, but it left behind its waste Mm -hmm. or some other artifact of its feeding. It's possible that you could take that sample and still get usable DNA from it. Interesting. Yeah, it's almost like a forensic type application. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. Yeah. The, your success where these types of tests is, is always dependent on having a good quality template to sure. start with. Sure. So your success is going to be lower in those cases. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else you want to add? Most of our sequencing activities uh, have been centered around what's known as Sanger sequencing, which is sort of the original way that DNA was always sequenced. It's slower but it's very good for diagnostics because the quality control on it can be very high and it's easy to evaluate your confidence in a sequence um, with limited data processing capacity. We do have what's known as the next generation sequence here, a platform, uh, but it's an older one that we're moving away from, but we recently got a new smaller one that we're gonna begin doing experiments with. And the advantages of this platform is it produces way more data it's more expensive to operate, but the price per amount of data that you get is greatly reduced. 
and it should allow us to detect things that we wouldn't be able to detect otherwise. This will be especially true for low titer bacterial or viral infections in plants. It'll be very good for sequencing bacterial samples as well as viral genomes. That's what we're most excited about is uh, beginning to use this new technology that we just acquired. So there'll be more to talk about in the future. Once we get that ramped up, we might start doing different types of experiments more regularly. Cool. We'll have you back on the podcast so you can talk about those. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again for, for coming on. We really appreciate you and what you do to help drive our mission as a division. So thanks for joining us. All right. You're welcome. Feeling restless and need an activity to do while staying at home? Show your garden or landscape a little love. Check out our latest blog post for helpful tips and ideas. Blog posts cover a variety of topics and are posted regularly at fdaxdpi.wordpress.com. This is the Division Digest. It is a pleasure to welcome Justice Diamond to DPI as the new Geographic Information System Technician with the CAPS program. Justice is a graduate of the University of Florida with a master's degree in agricultural and biological engineering and is proficient in multiple mapping systems. Welcome, Justice. Thanks for tuning in to Plant Industry News. We appreciate our special guests for keeping us informed and updated. Follow us on social media at FDAXDPI. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or announcements you think should be included, email us at dpi-blog at fdax.gov. This podcast was produced by Holly Hughes. Don't bug us. We'll have another episode next month.